This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Right. Why don't we get started? We're still roughly on time, so if we start now, we can say we started on time. Uh, yeah, welcome to Labrie. Thank you for coming out. Um, and uh, this is our our final lecture for this term, so we'll be um, taking a bit of a break until September, and we'll start up again with. Um, another series of lectures, but this is wrapping it up for the term, and I managed to do this, um, postpone this lecture to the very end <laughs> of term. Can people hear me okay enough? We're, tr- we're trying to keep it a little cooler in here with the, with the AC, but it does make a little bit of background noise. Okay. You're sitting very close to the machine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do my best. I don't mind hollering a little bit. So, um, this is the point of the evening when I disavow my title and uh, tell you what I'm really going to talk about. <clears throat> so, uh, this lecture I decided would be better titled um, Rambling Through the Underbrush of Art, Holiness, Cynicism, and Sentimentality. <laughs> But I've tricked you all into coming with a very grand title, which promises big things, uh, which is an imagination for the good. This is my published title. Imagination for the good. Can art make righteousness plausible? And I know that that question and the title itself demands a lot of explanation, but um, rather than spend time doing that, we're just going to move on. <laughs> uh, when I think about art and faith... My mind often goes to Paul's words in Philippians 4, uh, starting in the 8th verse, where he says, Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Uh, Paul is not talking about art, but uh, because his words are very, very general, they can apply to every aspect of life. Whatever it is, he's leaving it wide open for our application, uh, allowing us to think about what kinds of things are true and honorable and just. He's exhorting the, the, the Philippians and us to keep in our minds what the good is. Don't lose sight of the real things that God has called worthy. And it's God's opinion here that has the authority for Paul. Whatever God honors, whatever is in line with God's justice, whatever God calls honorable, um, whatever God calls pure, whatever God commends, 
Paul is saying, think about these things, which means really allow your minds to dwell on what they mean, envision what these virtues would look like practically in your own life. This hasn't actually happened to me, but it's just the scenario that popped into my head. Like, what would living honorably look like when someone cuts me off in the parking lot and and flips me off in front of my children? Like, what would living honorably look like in that scenario? These are good questions to ask. Uh, Chew on these things and internalize them, lest amidst all the brokenness of life you forget that holiness is a real thing. And either despair or become enamored by unholy things. So do not forget that holiness is a real thing. And Paul is not naive. He knows that what we spend our time and mental energy thinking about will become more real to us, for good or for ill. The things that our minds are dwelling on all the time, those things become more real. They grow in stature in our minds. We don't make virtues real by thinking about them. That's not what he's saying. But we do train ourselves to see and value their importance that otherwise we might be blind to. So Paul wants Christians to train themselves to find godliness attractive. Learn to love righteousness. And this is another way of saying actively maintain your imagination for the good. One troubling question, and this comes up sometimes whenever people talk about this text. Uh, The troubling question is this. uh, Is Paul basically telling the Philippians to only think about nice things and to ignore the existence of the ugly, broken things? Is he saying basically, uh, keep the rose-tinted glasses on, folks, and keep your head in the clouds, and then everything will be okay? Just think about the nice things. Um, The answer is no. Paul is not doing that. Uh, First of all, the very first thing he tells them to think about is whatever is true. And lots of things are true, both good and bad. Uh, This means that any rose-tinted or sugar-coated view of reality is off-limits for us because acknowledging truth is what really matters. And then secondly, uh, Christians at the time that Paul wrote the book of Philippians are not really in great danger of developing unrealistically positive view of the world, I don't think. Uh, Paul did not have to say and remember suffering is real Uh, believe it or not persecution is a possibility Um, life can be hard and death will eventually come he doesn't have to say these things the Philippians are way more aware of these kinds of harsh realities than, than most of us today are living in America Paul himself was in jail when he wrote the letter And he was writing to people who were well aware of generally the hardships of life, but also the hardships that were virtually guaranteed if you were a Christian at that time. So, in Paul's context, it was much more urgent and necessary to remind the Philippians to think about what is good. Allow your minds to be captivated by the beauty of God's holiness and the things that please him, because you're surrounded by undeniable darkness. And of course, Paul is right. Our world is groaning under the far-reaching effects of sin and the fall. And this means that pure holiness is not something that we see in the world as it currently exists. So the question I think that, that some people have, maybe many people, whether they articulate it or not, is, is goodness even a real thing? Is there any such thing as uncorrupted kindness or purely motivated generosity anywhere? Where is it to be found? 
Um, our political situation in this country, I think, has, has, has formed an attitude of hopelessness in many of our minds. The polarization, the lack of, lack of communication across differences. Uh, I'm thinking maybe, uh, well, another huge, a huge thing is, the, is the, uh, the Me Too movement and the many after effects of the Me Too movement, uh, in which some of our most beloved public figures were outed for truly terrible behavior, truly terrible things. Uh, I think of Bill Cosby and many others. And I think a lot of people, I think, in the wake of that and in the, and just looking around us at the polarization in our country now have, are experiencing cynicism fatigue. I'm just tired of all the BS. <laughs> show me something real. Uh, show me someone good. Uh, some, some uncomplicated goodness, please. And thankfully there was Fred Rogers. Um, Passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, shown here reenacting an episode. So there's an episode of the, of the um, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood that I think was filmed in the 1960s, around the time that um, there was just really a rampant racial segregation and a lot of violence around it. Uh, um, white only pools, black only pools, and in a very um, countercultural and challenging. Uh, Act. He had his uh, the, the guy who plays a policeman on the show sit down with him. They wash their feet together in the paddling pool, and he dried the guy's feet with a towel. And he just looks at the camera in a challenging way, and that's and that's it. Uh, this was years later. They're doing the same thing again. <laughs> um, <clears throat> But there was something, there was something, uh, a cultural phenomenon going on with the, with the, the way in which Mr. Rogers was so uh, embraced when the documentary came out about him and then again the feature film with Tom Hanks. Uh, there was a hunger for something of, of just the, however dorky he was and square, he was, he was good and he was genuine, right? Um, <clears throat> So, given the extent of brokenness that we see in the world, um, I think it's all the more important for Christian people to remember that holiness exists in God himself. The whole world needs to see it and open open its eyes. So, I want you uh, to join me this evening. We're going to be thinking about art. Literature, music, film, theater, the visual arts, fine art. I'm not going to be talking about all these things, but we're just thinking very generally about art. Probably more about art forms that tell stories. If you think about whether it's uh, um, TV miniseries or novels or short stories, films, these kinds of things. Um, a lot of what, of what I want to say may seem to be just for artists for poets and songwriters and, and storytellers. But really, this lecture is for anybody who enjoys art at all. If you've ever binged a TV show on Netflix or Hulu or whatever, uh, if you've ever returned again and again to a favorite film or looked forward to the end of the day when you could curl up with a particular novel, then uh, this lecture is for you as well. <laughs> um, because we're talking about portrayal of goodness in art. And this is a question as much for an audience member as for an artist, because uh, we audience members are the ones who get to decide, at least for ourselves, whether a work of art portrays goodness well, uh, realistically, respectfully, romantically maybe, prudishly, mockingly. There's all kinds of ways in which you can portray goodness. And 
we make these kinds of decisions when we read novels or watch films. More specifically, I'm asking the question, is it possible to show human righteousness in our novels and poems and songs and films in a way that is actually attractive and believable to people today? Can art portray godliness as both appealing and plausible? And both of these aspects uh, of godliness, I think, are important. The appealing aspect. Does godliness look wholesome and attractive and joyful? Does it look like a genuine ingredient in human flourishing? Or does it not? Uh, Is it portrayed as stiff and self-righteous and joyless? Now I'm going to attempt to show you a clip from a film, which may or may not work. I may make a panicked noise, and hopefully someone will come and help me if there's a problem. (laughs) Got two screens here. Nope, not that one. Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay, that's enough, sorry. It's going to take me a few minutes to find my screen again here. I'm just going to... Very plausible, but not too appealing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, people know this movie, Chocolat? Chocolat, oh, yeah. sorry. So, this is the, the mayor of a very, very Catholic town. The, the, the story takes place during Lent, the very beginning of Lent. Um, the, uh, this woman moves to town and opens a, a, a chocolate shop. And it's just like the biggest offense. To the, it's a very legalistic town, and the mayor is like the pinnacle of the, of the legalistic righteousness. And he is just appalled by by how hedonistic the idea is of having a chocolate shop. But anyway, so he's he's been trying to discourage this woman as much as he can. And, and the prayer before God there is is uh, you know asking for some guidance. And anyway, it's a really interesting picture of rigid legalism and, and is painted in a very unattractive way, obviously, um, in such a way as, like, in his own eyes, the, the, him falling in this way is actually, in the context of the story, sort of a redemption, because he's actually becoming a human being a little bit more. Uh, I don't know how to get back to my screen, so... Nope. Okay. <laughs> All right, we'll just see how that goes. So, um, or <laughs> is godliness depicted as totally dorky and square and out of touch, like Ned Flanders? Which I can't. Come on, who are you? <clears throat> Sorry. There he is. Okay. The cursor just disappears and goes somewhere else. I'm not sure where it is. Um, Ned Flanders is the, is the Christian neighbor in The Simpsons who who uh, is actually over the over the course of many seasons of The Simpsons is actually sort of a moral compass, but he's also pretty out of touch and he's always the brunt of every joke and he's 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 uh, um, anyway. I'll, I'll stop talking about The Simpsons. Um, <clears throat> so the question, the question of attractiveness has to do with whether we as an audience uh, actually want to emulate the goodness that we see. <clears throat> is it something that we want to emulate? But then there's also the, the, the plausible aspect. Does it look possible? Is godliness depicted in a way that could actually be real in a world as we know it? Is it true to life? Or is it so perfect and squeaky clean that, and, and sort of picturesque that it's unbelievable to us? Uh, and this is another question entirely. It's a different question than, uh, is it worth emulating? Does it look beautiful? It's more, is it even, if it, is it even possible in the world as we know it? Um, does a character 
only ever make the right decisions for the right reasons and with a positive attitude, making righteous-sounding statements the whole time. So is it just too perfect or, or uh, just not, not believable? <clears throat> so this question of plausibility has to do with whether we as the audience ever could emulate what we see or is it just out of reach and does it fail to inspire us altogether? So uh, these distinctions are really subjective, um, but they're also very loaded questions that I'm asking. Uh, godliness, righteousness, these terms are freighted with religious meaning. Part of what I want to do is kind of un- unload them a little bit um, as we go. But in any case, all of us are audience members, even the artists among us. So I want you all to be thinking as I talk, who are artists that seem to have a powerful imagination for the good? Be thinking of examples. That's your job tonight is be thinking of examples. Uh, and that will add to our discussion at the end. Uh, I'll just make one side note. Uh, Flannery O'Connor is... Let me see if I'm going to... Here she is. Um, wonderful writer uh, whose work I love and respect, especially her, her short stories. We talk about her a lot at Brie and quote her because she's a very, very thoughtful Christian writer, a Roman Catholic writer who is just thinks very, very uh, clearly about what she's doing as an artist, as a Christian. She, she doesn't compartmentalize these things at all in her life. Uh, but her writing has been accused, I won't say by who, but has been accused of showing very little imagination for the good. You may disagree with that assessment, and that's okay. I'm not sure what I think about it. But her stories tend to depict the twisted side of humanity very vividly. She's brilliant at making human depravity actually look really bad. And she intentionally does this because, in her view, the culture has lost its ability to be disgusted by evil. So her her portrayal of the bad is hyperbolic. It's, It's exaggerated. It's satirical. For this reason, because the culture has lost its ability to even be disgusted by evil. And so she says this, To the hard of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures. That's, that's how she thinks about her own work. Uh, and that's from an essay called The Fiction Writer in His Country. Highly recommend it if, if any of you are writers trying to think about what that means uh, as, a, as, a, as a person of faith. This is very, very useful, helpful. Uh, essay. But if you read her work, there are very, very few characters who make goodness look beautiful. She's good at making depravity look terrible. <laughs> but very few of her char- her stories have characters that make goodness look beautiful. There are glimmers of what she calls grace or mystery that sort of break through in her stories, but they're always very subtle and momentary. And they only stand out because of the contrast of all the darkness that (laughs) surrounds it. Um, So to many people, hope, the idea of hope in O'Connor's stories is too meager. It's hardly there. Um, But in her defense, she was passionate about not reinforcing the comfortable sort of complacent attitudes our culture has towards sin. And so she was was writing very much with that in mind. Uh, that's just an example of the kind of thing we're talking about. Does, does an artist have an imagination for the good? In other words, are there, are there characters in their work that, that make goodness both beautiful and a plausible thing? <clears throat> uh, 
But I want to back up and talk a little bit about about um, what holiness even is. This is getting a little bit theological, but I, hopefully it'll it'll help as we as we proceed. Uh, when we talk about making righteousness or holiness uh, appealing and believable, I think we need to broaden our scope beyond just those works of art made by Christians that present an explicitly Christian message. Um, maybe even with Bible verses attached or something like that. Um, I also don't want to only talk about art in which the concepts righteousness and holiness are presented in specifically Christian terms. Um, there's nothing wrong with this kind of art necessarily. Um, I'm actually a big fan of the, of the show The Chosen. I don't know if that's okay to say. I'm not really sure. But, uh, which depicts the life of Christ and his disciples in what I think is a, is a pretty faithful and, and creative way. And I think it's an important show for that reason, and I was pleasantly surprised. However, not every portrayal of goodness in art can literally be Jesus, right? We have to, people have to write about other things and other people. Uh, neither does every righteous character need to be a Christ figure, per se. <clears throat> in my experience, explicitly Christian art is viewed almost exclusively by Christians. And, and often functions devotionally and as a reinforcer for what the audience already believes. Uh, I'm, tonight I'm just more interested in art that's accessible to a broader secular audience but can give us glimpses of what God's holiness might be like in a way that maybe transcends the, the sort of weak moral categories of our day. There's lots of examples of good guy characters that are beloved in our culture very often these characters point to nothing beyond the culture's kind of comfortable definitions of goodness. And they don't refer to any sort of higher moral reality at all. So if you have, if there's a character in a TV show that you're watching and they really exemplify the virtues of open-mindedness, acceptance, non-judgmentalism, these can be really good things, right? Uh, but they do not necessarily challenge the assumptions, assumptions of most secular people today. Um, the assu- main assumption being everything is okay as long as you're sincere and you don't hurt anybody. You know, that's that's a, that's a very common secular assumption today. Many of the many of the positive characters in media that we read or watch uh, don't really challenge this basic assumption at all. <clears throat> so some portrayals of the good harmonize almost too well with the values of the culture and offer no challenge. They don't make anybody uncomfortable. So for Christian people making art, I I want to suggest that we should strive for something more than this. What would it take for our art to make the holiness of God appear more real to people? Um, But now we're just going to back up and talk a little bit about what that even means. Uh, Holiness is not really something you can literally display on a screen. (laughs) Um... When the Bible talks about God's holiness, it's talking about his absolute moral perfection. It is his sheer goodness. And the word holy is often used in the Bible to mean set apart for a special purpose. But it implies purity, being unblemished, uncorrupted. In the Bible, God's holiness is inseparable from his justice. A holy God is right and true and his judgments, uh, he does not tolerate evil. This is why 
to people who are sinners, the holiness of God can be a terrifying thing in the scriptures. If you read Isaiah 6, it's an example of, of uh, the holiness of God being a scary thing because of the unholiness of, of people. But in addition, God's holiness is not his obedience to some higher law than himself. Because there is no higher law than himself. This is why God sometimes swears by himself. Because there's, there's no one and nothing higher than himself to swear by. So it's not that God is really good at obeying some list of rules that someone gave him. Uh, there's nothing above him. So God's holiness is simply him being true to himself. His absolute goodness is the source and the reference point for everything that can accurately be called good in the world. In other words, God's character is the moral foundation of of the universe, of heaven and of earth. So, from a Christian perspective, human beings are not called to just do their best by their own arbitrary standards in a morally empty universe. Uh, We don't accept that assessment of reality or of our own purpose. Instead, we believe that there is such a thing as true moral perfection and it's an objective universal reality it's God's holiness the goodness that we see in the people around us is only good because it corresponds to God's own goodness so the acts of patience of mercy, of love, of justice courage, self-control sacrifice, truth-telling all these very good things that, that people are capable of striving for they are at their best glimpses of God's holiness Another way of saying it, you could say people are good only insofar as they are godly, whether they recognize it or not, whether that's a reality that they recognize or not. But sadly, the word holy is fraught with so many bad connotations. Uh, what do people first think when they hear the word holy? What comes to mind? Is it, is it like good things or bad things? <laughs> good memories, bad memories. Uh, sometimes it's really useful to pay attention to the associations you have when you first hear a word before you think too much before you tell yourself what you're supposed to believe what comes to mind immediately when you hear the word holy Right? <laughs> I won't make you share you don't have to share um, but it's a freighted it's a freighted word for many people um, that is often attached to very negative connotations like stuffy, joyless and angry uh, obsession with rule keeping. So it's a word that desperately needs to be renovated and refreshed in our minds. Um, the Bible encourages us to imagine holiness as something blindingly beautiful. In Psalm 96, I mean, nope, Psalm 29, it's also similar line in Psalm 96, and similarly in First Chronicles 16. There's a number of places in the Bible where... Um, where the splendor of God's holiness is referred to. The splendor. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. So, remember, holiness is His moral perfection. His set-apartness. And the psalm is saying it has splendor. Which is uh, really connecting God's moral perfection with overwhelming beauty and kingliness. 
It's brilliant. It's, it's a gorgeous thing to observe. Unless our imaginations are captured by, captured by the beauty of holiness, uh, not just the rightness of it, but the beauty of it, we'll never be able to capture anyone else's imagination with, with that, will we? Um, so I'm going to give two illustrations, glimpses of holiness, examples of glimpses of holiness uh, from two very different um, places. The first one is from The Bunny Planet by Rosemary Wells, which if you're a student here uh, at Labrie, you've probably been read The Bunny Planet by Sarah Chestnut. Um, at Labrie, we have certain th- certain recipes we like to cook, and if we cook a recipe for students, we sometimes reserve that, and we say, like, oh, that's my recipe. None of the other workers can do that. And there's, a, and there's some sometimes books that we read aloud to students. We're like, I call this book. Please nobody else like read this one aloud at a Sunday meal or something like that. And somehow Sarah Chestnut got the Bunny Planet. I don't know how it happened, but that's kind of like her book to read to students. And it's been ten years. I feel like it's maybe time to what? But you had already read it though. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> no, I'm just poking fun. It's wonderful. I'm glad you. But but uh, all that is to say, the the Bunny Planet is a wonderful series of three stories uh, by Rosemary Wells. Just a, just a little bit of it. Um, <clears throat> in each story, a young rabbit is faced with hardships. They are somewhat ordinary child-sized hardships, but if you are a child, they are big and disorienting. So each child has a very bad, very sad day. Then, in each story, the bunny queen, whose name is Janet, Whisks the child. She's named Janet because it rhymes with planet. I'm pretty sure, but it works. It works beautifully. Uh, in each story, the bunny queen whisks the child away to the bunny planet and shows them the day that should have been, which I love. What What's so special about this? First of all, there is a day that should have been. There's such a thing as should, which means the suffering of the actual day should not have been. Why? According to who? Who gets to make these grand moral statements? Should. Well, Janet the Bunny Queen, she has the authority to, to make these statements, and you have to deal with them. She's... So none of the children in the stories are in a position to say, here's what should have been. They're disoriented and they're sad and they're caught up in the difficulties of the moment. They need a vision of goodness. They need a vision of rightness shown to them. And each story ends with a sighting of the bunny planet in the sky and the realization that it was there all along. It's never clear whether is this a dream or is just this. They, they wake up and is the bunny planet real or not? And then they see it. They see it somewhere, and there's this realization that it was there all along. In other words, the day that should have been is not just wishful thinking. The word "should" is not just wishful thinking. The longing for wholeness and joy corresponds to real wholeness and joy. Holiness is real. Uh, this is amazing for a kid's book in such in so few pages to have such a profound picture of like creational goodness, relational goodness, and a doctrine of the fall all mixed up together <laughs> for kids. <laughs> anyway, the reason why we read it over and over again. Um, my next illustration is from Lord of the Rings, uh, and this this is sort of a 
I wanted to read this both because it's a beautiful passage, but also because it's it kind of offers a metaphor of the kind of thing that I want to talk. I'm, I'm trying to articulate tonight. So this um, takes place when Frodo and Sam have made it miraculously through the mountain range into Mordor, and they've escaped the tower where all of the orcs were. Um, Sam has rescued Frodo from captivity in the tower and now they are sort of in the wilderness trying to figure out how they're going to get to Mount Doom across this big open plain in Mordor but they're um, in a pretty dire situation and for days and days Sauron has been belching out smoke and clouds and making it like night all the time it's one of the ways in which he makes the whole uh, world despair and then uh, there's this passage. They sat and made such a meal as they could. This is Frodo and Sam. Keeping back the precious lembas for the evil days ahead, they ate the half of what remained in Sam's bag of Faramir's provision, some dried fruit and a small slip of cured meat. They sipped some water. They had drunk again from the pools in the valley, but they were very thirsty again. There was a bitter tang in the air of Mordor that dried the mouth. When Sam thought of water, even his hopeful spirit quailed. Beyond the Morgai, there was the dreadful plain of Gorgoroth to cross. Now you go to sleep first, Mr. Frodo, he said. It's getting dark again. I reckon this day is nearly over. You can never quite tell what time it is because it's... Frodo sighed and was asleep almost before the words were spoken. Sam struggled with his own weariness, and he took Frodo's hand, and there he sat silent till deep nightfall. Then at last, to keep himself awake, he crawled from the hiding place and looked out. The land seemed full of noises, but there was no sound of voice or of foot. Far above the Ifel Dueth, in the west, the night sky was still dim and pale. There... Peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For, like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. Now, for a moment, his own fate and even his master's ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. (laughs) So, I wanted to read this passage. Uh because it sort of metaphorically gives us a picture of of what it is uh, that I think we should be trying to show forth in our art. The world is dark. The cloud cover is thick. There are many perils on the ground. uh, But there is holiness and goodness that cannot be destroyed by the darkness. And it will one day triumph completely. So can we, by our portrayal of goodness, help to part the clouds even a little bit and help people see the stars? Uh, but we run into many problems along the way, so now we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about 
some of the insufficient ways of viewing life <laughs> that, that we turn to very often. There <clears throat> you go. Insufficient ways. Uh, at Labrie, we sometimes talk about two polar opposite ways of viewing our lives and the world. Um, each view is like a lens through which we see things and interpret everything. Uh, but both are really inadequate to help us see rightly. And I'm talking about... Um, on the one hand, cynicism, and on the other hand, sentimentality. There's these two sort of opposite ends of a spectrum. Um, a cynical view would be that violence, dishonesty, deception, manipulation, these are all the foundational realities of existence. If you just dig down deep enough or look hard enough behind all the kindness and altruism we see in the world, you will find selfishness and greed and corruption. So from a cynical perspective, art that focuses on these dark things is considered by definition more real than art that doesn't. So the grittier and more disturbing something is, the, the more truthful it must be. Attempts to portray goodness and kindness as real are naive to the cynic. Um, there's always ulterior motives. Nothing is what it seems. Nothing is genuine, truly. So Cynicism claims to have this kind of x-ray vision, uh, the power to see through all facades to what is rotten underneath. It often, or cynicism is very good at posing as sophistication. The cynic is the one who is perceptive enough and courageous enough even to see just how bleak reality is. Um... The rest of you are children compared to the cynic, right? <laughs> Hopeful themes in art are dismissed as examples of wishful thinking, as grasping at straws in order to feel better. Uh, hopeful themes are often dismissed as sentimental. So we can see that one side of the spectrum likes to send insults towards the other side of the spectrum, and it goes the other way too. So stay tuned. Um, it's, 2020, it's 2023. We look, everybody hurls insults at each other from a distance. This is what, this is what we do. <laughs> Um, there's no doubt I think that cynicism can uh, sometimes function really cheaply in art sometimes you can almost sense the assumption behind a film or a show uh, the assumption that goes something like this as long as the audience face is rubbed in the nastiness and misery of life the art will be perceived as fearless and honest and unflinching and true and there's, there's status in these things right I think the mileage that a lot of artists get out of sheer uh, shock value uh, is an example of this. Sometimes I wonder this about about um, Quentin Tarantino. Sometimes his films are just like, okay, we get it, but like he's, he's getting as much mileage as he possibly can out of just shocking you, uh, and you're not not always sure what the point is in the end. Uh, it seems a little too easy. Like simply portraying darkness is not actually what makes good art necessarily right um, neither does it neither does simply portraying darkness equal truth telling necessarily either but on the other side you have sentimentality uh, and a sentimental view of life tends to ignore or downplay the extent of evil and its consequences in the world in favor of a more pleasant sweet and, and oversimplified view of life so this is sort of the equal and I would say opposite mistake. 
The complexities of the real world, including pain and suffering, are either ignored or minimized in some way. Christian art has sometimes fallen into this trap particularly hard, the the sentimental trap. Um, Art that treats problems as having simple spiritual solutions, or uh, maybe art that really denies the existence of problems altogether. Uh, intentionally depicting a world without the fall, and this is, this was actually Thomas Kincaid's like vision for what his art would be. He wanted to paint pictures that uh, gave you a, gave you a, a picture of a reality without the fall. Uh, something sugar coated <laughs> that doesn't correspond exactly to the to the world we actually see, right? Um, this is I don't it's it's Thomas Kincaid is he's it's sad he's 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 passed away and I don't want to just like he's kind of an easy target and I don't want to just um, gratuitously like mock his work but it but it is an example it's, it's an example of like let's paint a picture of of not reality let's paint a picture of something that is really really nostalgic and supposed to make us feel good but is intentionally avoiding uh, reality. This is this is called the Good Shepherd's Cottage. That's Jesus welcoming sheep into his house, I guess, or something. Like that. Um, but when I see art like this, uh, I think many many people when they see art like this, it seems like there's an attempt to sh- to show something of the goodness and beauty that's real in the Christian worldview. Uh, but in that attempt, something of the truth has been hushed up and avoided. Right? <laughs> um, reality is much more problematic than the art implies. So, uh, the, the critique that this side, the sentimental side, lobs back at, at the cynic is that all the negativity in art is just gratuitous. There's no reason for it. It's just there to be nasty. There's more than enough nastiness in the world already, so let's think about nicer things. <clears throat> and then just a little bit more about sentimentality because it's really quite uh, just going to go back to that <clears throat> it's an important concept because it's actually it's actually all over the place in our culture but one, another characteristic of sentimentality is that it seeks emotional experience in a very self-referential way so a sentimental person cares less about real grounds for hope, real grounds for hope, and more about the positive feelings that can be manufactured. Uh, the sentimental person cares less about the actual suffering of other people uh, than their own emotional response to that suffering. So being moved to tears and viewing yourself as a person who gets moved to tears is the point. Experiences that elicit strong emotion are sought after in a way that doesn't do anything to ease anyone else's pain. It's an enjoyment uh, of feeling for its own sake that leads to no action. Um, so, cynicism, sentimentality. Uh, I've sort of painted them in a caricatured way um, for the sake of argument, uh, but... If you're feeling like neither of these quite does justice to reality, then you're right. That's good. Um, We need a more nuanced sort of realism that that sentimentality and cynicism are both sort of inadequate to provide. And this is actually what the Christian faith calls us to. Realism, in Christian terms, acknowledges the presence of evil 
and also acknowledges what is good and true and redemptive. Because both are aspects of reality as we see it. Uh, Truthfulness demands that we acknowledge both. Even though we believe that God will someday conquer evil and that the darkness will not have a future, nevertheless the darkness is part of everyone's experience existentially. It's part part of our lives. This is why the Bible presents lament and thanksgiving equally as legitimate forms of worship to God. They're both necessary responses to the sorrow and the joy that that are real in life. So we've already reflected on Paul's words to the Philippians about not losing sight of what is good. Think about these things that are pleasing. Uh, In Jeremiah 8, the the prophet has very, very harsh words for people in leadership who try to minimize the extent of the bad. They try to minimize uh, the brokenness in society and the prophet is, is sort of saying, like, take off the rose-tinted glasses and call a spade a spade. Things are not good. Okay? And it's really a word of judgment on the leaders. It says, prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No. They have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So, this is a warning, a very stern warning against saying, peace, peace, when there's actually not peace, right? Let's pretend that everything's nice, guys. Let's, let's, let's not think about anything that might disturb us or keep us up at night. And the prophet is saying, no. You need to acknowledge the brokenness when it's real. Bind the wound of the people like it's actually serious, because it is. Christians who are engaged in the arts, I think we need to strive to do justice to, the, to this sort of complexity, right? Um, that, that there is great goodness and great brokenness, uh, and both of those are part of our lived experience and need to be part of what it is to truthfully do art. Uh, but this is always, always a profound act of trust in God. <clears throat> we need to trust Him. To put our hope in the good while looking honestly at the bad. Both of these demand us placing ourselves in his hands and trusting him. Um, For people trying to to honor God uh, through their art, it's a particular kind of trust needed, I think. Bearing witness to the light while not shying away from the darkness as we tell stories, as we paint paintings, as we write books. Uh, it almost guarantees that we'll be misunderstood and unappreciated by many people who, who, uh, who view our work. There'll always be someone to call us names. This is because the categories of cynicism and sentimentality, they're very subjective. Uh, there's no universally agreed upon line beyond which we commit sentimentality or commit cynicism. But people draw those lines in different places. So by some will be criticized for, for being unrealistically positive in our portrayal of hope. Uh, we may be called cowardly because our work isn't gritty enough. Uh, by others, will be criticized as being gratuitously negative in our portrayal of real darkness. Um, so, uh, if we get equal criticism from, from both sides, we, we're potentially doing something right. Um, I'm going to show you a... Vi- well, I'm going to skip that one. 
I can describe it. <laughs> um, so, has anyone seen the movie Misery anytime recently? <laughs> That's a, uh, it's a uh, Stephen King story, and there's a novelist who has written um, a whole series of some very romantic kind of novels. He has been in a terrible car accident, and there's a woman who lives off in the boondocks in northern Maine who rescues him and basically keeps him captive in her house. She's a huge fan of his novels. She's his greatest fan, right? And he is uh, incapacitated in a bed in her house. Um, she is reading his newest novel, which hasn't been published yet, and it's not part of that series. It's a little bit, it's, it's a new thing that the guy's doing, and it's more autobiographical about his own life when he was an uh, inner-city kid. And she is hesitant to tell him what she thinks about the novel, but she says, oh, it's the swearing. The swearing is just, I don't like the swearing. I don't appreciate it. It doesn't have any, like, uh, dignity. And, and he says, well, these are slum kids in the stories, and I, I grew up in the slum, and that's, everybody talks that way. So he, he's claiming to be a realist. She's accusing him of being a cynic. And, of course, she, because it's misery, she's a psychopath, and she starts screaming at him, No, nobody talks like that! And spills the soup on him, and, like, anyway, it's this utterly terrifying movie. It's really it's worth, it's worth watching. But, <laughs> but it's, it's a funny example of how relative and how subjective these categories can be. What do you mean everybody talks like that? Do I go to the store and ask for some effing pig feed? No! Anyway, and so... Um, that was way more interesting than the actual clip. I really <laughs> knocked it out of the park. Um, <clears throat> so, in any case, one person might think that language and violence in a story is real and necessary, and another might think that it uh, serves no, no purpose except to be nasty. One person might think that, say, picture, so I don't know if anybody watches the show, This Is Us. Has anyone seen this show? Um, it's okay if you haven't. Uh, there's a character in that, I won't even name his name, but there's a character in that that I just have such a hard time with. Uh, one person might view the kindliness of this sort of grandfatherly figure is just sweet and wholesome and redemptive, while another person, like me, views it as just over-the-top, gushy, saccharine, folksy, to the point of being nauseating. I just can't handle it. I'm just like, oh, no. See, this is this is the kind of um, the kind of subjectivity we're dealing with here. Um, so this is just a reason why, if we're making art, we just really need to trust God and take the risk. Um, Sarah, I'm sorry, I'm just going to talk about you again. Uh, <laughs> uh, Sarah, my colleague, told me uh, an anecdote about she was talking to a, a poet friend, and she was Sarah was expressing, um, you know, just just a concern about how do we avoid being sentimental. And this woman, another poet, said, if if you don't risk being sentimental, you're not doing your job. You have to risk it. For some reason in my mind, I think she, I, I hear her saying, honey, it's, I don't know if she said honey or not, but honey, if you don't risk, no, probably not. No. <laughs> if you don't risk being sentimental, you're not doing your job. In other words, you can portray goodness in as faithful a way as you can, and some people will call it sentimental, no matter what you do. <laughs> right? I would also say you need to also risk being perceived as cynical um, by some people. This is just an aspect of what trusting God is if we're art, an artist. We need to step out and make something and be okay with with uh, how it's viewed in the world. 
Um, we'll talk about another sort of related issue. <clears throat> Whether we like it or not, in the West, um, we live in a culture that's been shaped by our understanding of human psychology. Uh, people in the West tend to think of themselves and others in psychological terms. Uh, no longer in theological terms. Uh, what is going on internally in the subjective realm of my mind is what determines reality, is what determines who I am. And this has affected how we view all kinds of moral issues. This is, this is a uh, huge, hugely broad topic that I'm only just mentioning on my way by. Um, but the rise of the therapeutic has impacted how we think about good and bad actions, it affects how we think about protagonists and villains in stories that we read and in real life. The idea of a just plain villain in a story who just does bad things because they're bad. That's a concept that you don't see very much in films today or shows today or novels. That's kind of relegated to sort of comic book stories. Uh, in most cases, it would be considered insufficient, the sort of cardboard villain well, they're bad because they're bad. They did bad things because they're bad, right? <laughs> uh, serious storytellers, whether it's film or novel, or uh, tend to present antagonists in a more complex light, often by telling the character's backstory, right? There's so there's so many films and TV shows that 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 focus on the backstory of a character. Um, and by painting a plausible and relatable picture of how they turned out the way they did, right? And so the story is at least in part a psychological journey. This is the way so many stories are told today. Overall, this is probably a good thing, right? Because people are complex, and there are often very deep psychological reasons why people behave and misbehave. Uh, it makes for more realistic storytelling, more interesting characters. It creates sympathy for people who make bad decisions. <laughs> um, but it's just interesting to think about for me because, uh, let's, okay, this is a, this is my fun slide here. Um, just a few minutes of thinking about random villains from movies that I, <laughs> that came to mind. Handful of things. Handful of people. Um, so this is the, this is Joker from the recent movie Joker. Here's Kylo Ren down here. This is Maleficent, Cruella, Wicked Witch of the West from Wicked. I forget her name, but she's from Snow White and the Huntsman. And then Anton Sugar from No Country for Old Men. Uh, with exception of Anton, don't don't look at him. <laughs> he, he's his his role in the story is to be a complete mystery. There's no fathoming his evil. You don't know anything about him. He's just completely unhinged and wicked. But with the exception of him. Each one of these people have a very complex backstory that explains why they are who they are, right? Um, I mean, and, and some—I mean, the Cruella movie was amazing. I thought it was really, really interesting. But, but uh, you know, we're, we're no longer kind of allowed to view like an evil character in a movie as just an evil character. There's the way stories are told. And the way, the way a lot of these are already stories that we already knew, but they're like, no, let's go back and talk about how this person became a villain so that we have a more nuanced view of what, what they are and what they're doing. So 
the psychologizing of all behavior, while I think it does make for good storytelling sometimes, it can also undermine very subtly the notion of true agency and responsibility, right? Um, the line between offering psychological explanations and subtly excusing actions is very fine, right? It's very subtle. So the undermining of agency and responsibility can cut the other way too. It can undermine both responsibility for bad actions and also credit for good ones. So the notion of a character who is secure in who they are and who makes wise decisions for noble motives is less plausible to people today than it would have been probably 100 years ago. To be a believable good character, you have to be more psychologically psychologically complex than that. You have to be conflicted and less sure of yourself. The adventure in so many stories is as much about self-discovery and the exploration of one's identity than it is about the quest, the actual thing that's being done. Um, and again, this is not bad necessarily. Um, honorable characters are more plausible when they're presented with flaws, right? This is this is what makes a good novel. Sometimes is that there's good characters, but they're believable because they have they're they're complex and they have have flaws, and this is very true to life. <clears throat> but even so, I think there there can be a problem when when noble actions cannot be portrayed as having noble motivations. I think this this happens in some stories. In my this is where I get into really hot water. Uh, because a lot of people disagree with me, but I'll just go for it anyway. Uh, in my opinion, uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies uh, go over the edge in this regard. And I'll try to explain what I mean. How Peter Jackson handles Tolkien's characters is very, very interesting and modern, I think. Um, I'll let you look at Aragorn while I speak, because he's so handsome. <laughs> but... Um, but he's very modern and troubled. Look at him. Sorry. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Tolkien's Aragorn is is truly grounded, honorable character. Someone who knows who he is. He considers very carefully what the right choices are to do in difficult circumstances. And then, exercising his will, he does it. <laughs> he chooses the good. Again and again throughout the stories. He has an amazing strength of character. Gandalf, the wizard, describes him with deep respect as someone who can take his own counsel. In other words, he's wise enough in very difficult circumstances to consult himself and then proceed. <laughs> he sometimes agonizes over difficult choices, but never because he's unsure of who he is. He knows he is the future king. He's been planning for that day when he'll ascend to the throne for years. What he does not always know is which of the many possible winding paths will he have to take to someday claim his kingship. He doesn't know the path. The classic moment is when they, they've been ambushed by the orcs. Sam and Frodo have fled across the river, heading towards Mordor. He longs to go with them, because that's the mission. But he also longs to go to Minas Tirith, which is his city, where he will be one day be king. But then there's these super annoying two younger hobbits that got kidnapped and are held hostage and are being taken away by, likely to their torture and death. And he, which there's these three options here, and he's he spends time in real agony, and then he takes his own counsel and he knows what the right thing to do is, and he pursues these hobbits that are 
Without help, we'll, we'll surely die. <clears throat> so the amazing thing about Aragorn's character is that he's prepared to make the righteous choice, even when it will likely lead to his death and he may never be king. So to be king is his right, and he knows it, but he's not prepared to rise to the throne by any means. He does take the throne, but as he should, uh, through a very dangerous path and through extreme humility. This is how he, this is how he comes to the throne. That's Tolkien's Aragorn, right? That, that's, that's the kind of strength of character that, that, that Tolkien gives us in the person of Aragorn. Peter Jackson and his, his team present a very different kind of person. Uh, Jackson's Aragorn is not confident in who he is. Uh, at several key points in the story, he expresses deep uncertainty about taking the throne. He refers to it almost as something that's been forced upon him. I didn't really want this. Um, and you see this actually in most of the good characters in the story. The right decisions are not made from strength of character, but by accident. Circumstances tend to force the plot forward. Decisions are not made by the characters, but they're made for the characters uh, by forces outside themselves. This is the character of Faramir. If anybody knows the character of Faramir, uh, he does exactly what the, the, the character in the book does not do. He, he decides to take the ring. You know, he, he basically caves to temptation. And at the very last minute, he lets Frodo go because they get ambushed by orcs. He doesn't have a choice. So he makes the right decision by accident. It's not actually from strength of character. Uh, Mary and Pippin, the, the, the two hobbits that are friends, with, they, they join the whole adventure by accident. They didn't even choose to come. They just stumbled into the, into the adventure by accident while stealing mushrooms in the movie. So, uh, and there's many more examples of this where actually noble decisions that were made in the books are made by accident in the movies. So I think there's a subtle statement about goodness and agency here. Maybe not too subtle. <clears throat> My hunch is that the filmmakers felt that true strength of character would be implausible to a modern audience. That thinks of everything in psychological terms. And those psychological terms dictate that there's no antagonist should be fully held culpable for evil, and no protagonist can really receive credit for good. Because everyone is simply reacting to their circumstances. And so this is a... Uh, that's all I'm going to say about Lord of the Rings. But uh, if, if uh, anybody wants to think about this question, uh, for those of you who have both read the books and seen the movies, does Peter Jackson's portrayal of Aragorn make the character more believable, uh, more relatable? Is Tolkien's, is Tolkien's version of Aragorn too good to be plausible? Let's just going to throw that out there. Um... <clears throat> Now I just want to, uh, to move to my final section here. We're just going to look at a couple of examples of, of what I... And this is totally... You're just getting what Ben Kai's happened to have thought of in the past week. This, I'm, I'm not at all claiming to like have my finger on the pulse of anything. Um, but what are some examples of things that I've seen or read about that, that give us a glimpse of, of, of what holiness could be? Right? Um, And very often, uh, ironically, glimpses of holiness can be found in many ordinary, unexpected places in stories and in real life. It's unassuming characters that are doing the right thing when there's no tangible benefit for doing it. 
and their, their lives kind of display the sacredness of everyday concerns. Uh, their goodness is not spectacular in the way that the evil of villains is sometimes spectacular. All those villains that I showed you a minute ago, like all of them are just like spectacular characters. Big, splashy, bad stuff. But like, what's the equivalent of big, splashy, good stuff? There's... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's very often not big and splashy. That's the, that's the point. Uh, okay, so... Some hopeful examples. Okay. Um, the janitor, Mr. Scheibel, from the miniseries The Queen's Gambit, played by an actor named Bill Camp. Mr. Scheibel is a character that, um, not a ma- not a major character in the show at all. Um, has anyone seen The Queen's Gambit? Somebody watched that miniseries? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mr. Scheibel is a character that all your TV-watching instincts tell you is going to be a creep. You know the instincts I'm talking about. You're like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, uh, he hangs out alone in the basement of an orphanage playing chess by himself. You know, it's this dark, dimly lit room. And, and Beth, who's a nine-year-old girl, approaches him because she's curious about chess because he plays chess by himself on his break time. <clears throat> And when she approaches him to ask about it, all my alarms were going off like, oh no, I thought, now in addition to all the crap in her life, she's an orphan, she's going to be sexually abused. This is what I thought, because this is, it's a sad story, right? But no, actually. (laughs) The storytellers surprise us, on purpose, I think. I think it's like a really delightful, uh, like, relief that's given to us. Mr. Scheibel is gruff. The first thing he says is, girls don't play chess. So he's not nice, you know. <laughs> but he ends up being the very first adult in her life to treat her with dignity. He's the first person to recognize that she has an extraordinary gift for chess. And as he gets to know her better, he goes way out of his way to try to give her opportunities to improve and to compete. Um in a very understated way, he loves her and sets her life on a positive course. And there's this wonderful scene where she she beats him, checkmate, and he gives her this book, and she's like, I don't know, am I am I good enough to I mean I don't know if I'm good enough to even read this and he tells her, You are astounding. <laughs> and it's this moment is the only like moment of praise she's she's ever received. And uh and he is humbled and is just he really is, is one of the a very beautiful positive character she eventually grows up, leaves years later comes back and visits the, the orphanage after he's died and she sees all these pictures of her that he had collected from all of the chess competitions she's won and uh, it's just it's really a beautiful picture um, but again, not a flashy character but somebody who is who is strategically placed in the story to show something wholesome and good and redemptive to this young person. Um, okay, and now for something completely different. <laughs> Esther drew my attention to, to the live-action Cinderella movie, which is great. If anyone happens, I think it's a really good film. Played by Lily James. Um, before she's nicknamed Cinderella, her name is Ella, so... Ella's mother, before she dies, tells this to her daughter. She says, I have to tell you a secret 
that will see you through all the trials that life can offer. Have courage and be kind. When there is kindness, there is goodness. When there is goodness, there is magic. I'm not sure what the magic part means exactly, but in any case, Cinderella lives by this advice. And it's definitely a fairy tale. It's supposed to be a fairy tale. So one of the one of the characteristics of fairy tales is that internal beauty and external beauty always coincide. So she's a beautiful person inside and she's beautiful outside also. And her her horrible, terrible sisters are terrible on the inside and terrible on the outside. <laughs> um, but it's also a fairy tale in that, uh, like all good fairy tales, Ella's kindness ends up paying off spectacularly in the end, right? She did the right thing, and good things happened to her. Uh, but along the way, the movie shows, with some realism, I think, how costly it is to live by this principle of have courage and be kind. Uh, in the midst of hopeless circumstances, in the face of uh, gratuitous cruelty every day, when there's no signs that being kind will ever do her any good at all. But she, she remains true to that. This is one of the wonderful things about fairy godmothers in fairy tales. They tend to show up and tell people that their efforts to be good have been noticed. <laughs> your work was not in vain. That's the Apostle Paul. But you... But you're, you uh, no, we, it's been noticed. Right? Um, that's very much what happens in, in the Cinderella story. Okay, something totally different here. So this is James Harriet from the new, uh, the newer series, All Creatures Great and Small. Uh, these are true stories written by James Harriet himself, and then there's been a couple of different productions telling these stories. Um, James Harriet is a country veterinarian in the north of England. Because he's Scottish and he's new to Yorkshire, he's working very hard to be accepted by the local farmers and to earn their trust. If you're a veterinarian, you need to, you know, Farmers need to trust you, otherwise you won't get any work. Um, as the audience, you're rooting for him because he's, he's a competent vet and the odds are stacked against him. But even though he's desperate to be accepted, over and over again he has to make really difficult choices that actually alienate him from the, from the locals. He has to euthanize a very valuable racehorse that's, that's in agonizing pain. He has to do it. For the, for the sake of the animal and that costs him a lot socially and, and uh, in the community he has to quarantine a farmer's whole herd of cows to stop the spread of tuberculosis it's one of his and everybody hates him for that uh, and then most significant of all there's a, there's a scene uh, I forget what season it is but um, he chooses to intentionally lose a cricket match to help save the reputation of a local man Hugh who is his rival. So Helen, James's sweetheart, was engaged to Hugh, but broke it off on the day of their wedding. So it's deeply painful. Hugh is still hurting. Uh, at the climax of the cricket match, Hugh is bowling and James is batting. And for James's team to get a draw, he has to just defend the wicket from the ball. But he very subtly steps to one side and Hugh smashes the wicket and wins the game. And James is disgraced because his team like has lost this game. But it's actually a beautiful moment because you as the viewer are kind of angry at him for doing it. You're almost as angry as his teammates are. Uh, you're caught up with the competitive moment. And you want James to make a good impression on all the local guys, and he hasn't. Like, why'd you do that? But you slowly realize that it was just a very, very sensitive act of mercy. 
to Hugh, and it reveals his righteous character, his kindness and desire to bring no more shame to Hugh, allows him to to completely rise above this very peer-driven competitive climate. He's just he's functioning on a different level in terms of what is moral and what is important than everybody else. And that's something about what holiness is. It's the set-apartness. It's like you're functioning by different rules <laughs> than, than the status quo. It also pays off because his girlfriend, Helen, notices what he did and tells him, I love you for that. Anyway, so that was, that was, a, that was a great moment. <laughs> um, okay, lastly... This is where we're going to uh, wrap it up pretty soon. Uh, sometimes glimpses of holiness are to be found in very idiosyncratic, countercultural characters. And these are sometimes characters that don't even appeal to us at first because their righteousness is just too weird. It's too strange. Um, Tish Harrison Warren, a uh, wonderful writer, Anglican priest, uh, recently wrote a wonderful op-ed in the New York Times about the show Ted Lasso. Um, she compares Ted to the Russian Orthodox idea of a holy fool. And the whole, this whole essay is about what a holy fool is. Um, she says this, The holy fool is a person who flouts social conventions to demonstrate allegiance to God. Holy fools dwell in ordinary secular life, but they approach it with completely different values. Rejecting respectability and embracing humility and love, holy fools are so profoundly out of step with the broader world that they appear to be ridiculous or even insane and often invite ridicule, and yet they teach the rest of us how to live. From a religious perspective, a rejection of the trappings of success of whatever the mainstream culture values most deeply can be a prophetic act. One that, as Lasso shows, rarely gets applause. The so-called foolishness of holy fools is tethered to their spiritual insight. They offer a change in perspective. What appears normal and successful in the world is revealed by the fool to be hollow, vain, and pointless. What appears foolish, it turns out, is the true path of flourishing. Above all, a holy fool is an icon for radical humility. And this is where Lasso most clearly embodies this persona. So Ted Lasso is not he's not uh, outwardly a fool for God. He's not he doesn't talk about being a Christian or he's not talking about this as being a spiritual mission. But the way the way the show portrays this character, it's very much he's functions in that way. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren is very, very perceptive about his character. Um, he is very countercultural in his rejections of the, of the trappings of success. He's a coach. He's an American football coach who is hired by an English soccer team, uh, really uh, to be a joke. The whole point is to humiliate the team. And uh, in the midst of all this stuff, he enters into a very, very jaded and cynical and harsh culture. He refuses to speak ill of anybody, uh, even those who have brutally slandered him. But he's a ridiculous character. And, I, and I, I, I love the show, and I didn't relate to him at first. And by the end of the last season, I still didn't relate to him. Like, what? oh, man, he's insane. He's just... But he... Uh, you gradually see his impact on everybody else. And people are transformed around him. 
Uh, everyone looks askance at him at first and they mock him, but very slowly his influence is, is sort of shown because of his genuine love for people. He really, really loves people and begins to kind of melt their, their defenses. Um, I'm going to show... Uh, I'm going to attempt to show a, uh, a video, and that's where we're going to end. Um, the answer to the question, what was the question I was asking? An imagination for the good, can art make righteousness plausible? Uh, I think it can, but it's very hard. It's very challenging, but it's a worthy task for those of us who are writers um, or engaged in art in any way. And for those of us who are audience members, to, to begin to... To, um, to view art with these things in mind I think is good and important how is goodness being portrayed here uh, how is folly being portrayed here these are really important questions to ask okay let's give it a go so Ted Lasso's kit man which is like basically the guy in the locker room that does all the, uh, the laundry has um insulted him and left and he's become a coach of a, of a different team and now that he's a big famous coach he said some terrible things about Ted uh, very very publicly and this is a press conference where Ted Lasso is being asked to comment right so this is his chance to really dish it back and he's being told by everybody that he should fight back you know basically return insult for insult Sees my cursor, tell me. <laughs> nope. That's still chocolate, yeah. Here we go. <laughs> Just enjoy the. Uh, Unanimous opinion that Richmond will be relegated again at the end of the season. Mm, yeah, that's true, isn't it? Expectations for us are as low as a rattlesnake belly button. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> we got 38 chances to prove all them folks wrong, right? Yeah. And my hopes are as high as a draft's top hat. Uh, next question. And if it is, why is a draft wearing a top hat? Don't ask me, man. Go ask the draft. <laughs> true. Yes, Marks. Marks and Wire, the independent. Congrats on the new gig. Thank you. What do you got? Do you have any response to the comments made earlier today by your former assistant coach, Nathan Sherman? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I mean, he came and got him, didn't he? No doubt about that. <laughs> hey, but that's Nathan great for him. You know, he's the same way on the pitch. You know, he'll find the tiniest little weakness in a team and just want to attack that. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's a junkyard dog, man. And smart. They're real lucky to have him over there at West Ham. I wish him the best of luck. 
<laughs> I guess I'm a little surprised that's all you come up with, especially against me. You know, not one joke about me being a dumb American? Come on, man. Sitting there. I mean, I'm so dumb. Y'all supposed to say, how dumb are you? Gary? Why? Well, I mean, just classic joke structure. Give it a shot. I mean, I'm so dumb. What? How dumb are you? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so dumb that the first time I heard y'all talking about Yorkshire pudding, I thought it was the fancy word y'all had for dog food. <laughs> I mean, I'm so dumb. When I text someone over here about money, I still spell pounds LBS. <laughs> Look, man, I'm not a great coach. Probably ain't. You know, I've been doing this sport now for three years, and I still get a chuckle every time someone talks about handball violations. <laughs> and not one crack about my appearance. Yeah, about this mustache? I, I look like Ned Flanders doing cosplays. Ned Flanders. <laughs> when I talk, it sounds like Dr. Phil has a dark puberty. <laughs> I'm more corny than Kevin Costner's outfit. I lost you on that one. Yeah. Uh, dreams? No. I, I guess y'all don't want to like baseball here, so I would like movies about the... Uh, well, hey, how about this one? Regarding my panic attacks, I've had more psychotic episodes than Twin Peaks. <laughs> I mean, I'm so crazy. I'm crazy. There we go. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry for those of you who haven't seen season three yet. That was a bit of a spoiler, but anyway. Um, I think that's where I'm going to wrap it up. Um, at this point, we would um, like to have a discussion if anybody wants to ask questions or um, raise objections or think of other examples. Um, oh, this? Sorry. Yeah. But I do know that, like, very often, kids that are unable to to, yeah. to put into words what's really going on can yeah. oftentimes <clears throat> kind of comes out um, the good and the the good and the ugly. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
You. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, some of what you're saying was reminding me of a podcast that I was listening to actually about Lord of the Rings. Um, and just emphasizing the point that, especially now in literature, we often put an emphasis on um, things needing to be relatable, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily always work because, mm. um, because we are sinful, you know, and we are limited. And specifically thinking about Aragorn, I don't relate to Aragorn. Because I don't relate to being sure that I'm meant to be the ruler of a land, and that's my <laughs> destiny, and that's mm-hmm. where I'm going. I'm just figuring out how to get there. Yeah. Like, but having that image of knowing, knowing that, it, it kind of gives you something to, like, there can be there can be characters who aren't relatable, but they're inspiring. Yeah. And that you yeah, yeah. reach for, and I think that actually leads like is a good thing to think about with holiness, where. Mm. Um, you know, holiness, in a sense, isn't relatable to us mm-hmm. because we're, we're sinners. So mm-hmm. it's not going to, but it becomes relatable through Jesus. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be like a, a constant tension where, um, even with Ted Lasso, like, I don't relate to how Ted Lasso reacts if they ask me. Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, he just is able to be angry at things in a way yeah. that I don't find relatable. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, you watch it and you're like, I would like to be that way. Mm-hmm. I would like mm-hmm. to have that reaction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a really, really helpful thought. Yeah, I like I like that because it's it's um, why why should we assume that something is only going to be impactful on me if I if if I think of myself as just like the people and watch like why why does that have to be the case? <laughs> yeah, it's almost like the yeah 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 exactly something someone who's not like me might actually be what I, exactly what I need to to see yeah yeah that's helpful. <clears throat> Anybody else? Yeah, Joshua. Oh, I just, I, I liked your, um, like thinking about other examples. I enjoyed yeah. the ones you, you brought Church and I do. I haven't seen many of those. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, it's, um, I was just, I just thought about sharing a couple that have mm-hmm. been important to me or aspire, or have inspired me to, uh, like live my own life better, even mm-hmm. though have very different lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, and maybe some are debatable, uh, but yeah, one is Jim from The Office. Gonna write that down. Jim from The Office. Like men who like consistently and deliberately, like, very deliberately, treated a woman with respect, yeah. and honor, yeah, and, like yeah, humor and care, and there's just not a lot of. Examples of that. I mean, you yeah. did other things that you're like, oh, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> and then I think uh, Atticus Finch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To kill a mockingbird. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like, you know, got him, I've got him down here already yeah, as a possible. Yeah, <laughs> just like pinnacle. Yeah. Like peak human, uh, even though it wasn't an actual human. Um, and then also uh, uh, a show that's pretty bleak, but I, your, your comment about how Peter Jackson kind of intentionally, unintentionally robbed characters in Lord of the Rings of agency and just made mm. them sort of caught up in the circumstance. Yeah. Um, and Breaking Bad, the mm. character Hank. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. He was so unlikable to meet him. Hank Schrader. I have uh, a friend here too, Josh. Such, uh, you and me, yeah, right? We're, we're on again. Yeah. Well, it's true, yeah. No, who's someone yeah. who like rises to an occasion and like makes yeah. a choice and pursues it. I mean, I mean, literally cost him everything yeah. to, to pursue justice and yeah. to fight against evil. 
and he's yeah he is a character whose arc when you're first introduced him and you get to know him as a character mm-hmm. he's just so unlikable and yeah. he yeah. is sort of a caricature of everything that's annoying about <laughs> men yeah. um, and then yeah. he really becomes such a noble sacrifice yeah, yeah. He, he, yeah, yeah. He, but he chooses like right. he plays a role anyway so those are just a few I, I, yeah. I really I like the I like the kind of looking at uh, art that doesn't just entertain but sure, yeah. inspires which is weird yeah thank you for that because that, that's one of the things that is um, so wonderful about Breaking Bad I think is is the yeah the way in which over time the character changes and your sympathy for the character changes and you actually see you see them really transform in real in in, um, in believable in a believable way yeah yeah, I agree. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah, Kathy. Well, if we're going to talk about what is inspiring, mm-hmm. I recently saw a movie called The Covenant. Okay. It's a war film. It's okay. not easy to watch. Mm-hmm. But it portrays real heroism mm-hmm. on the part of this interpreter that's about the U.S. going into Afghanistan. Okay. And they get an interpreter mm-hmm. who has that has to be there because they have to understand what right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And starts out. I'll just say this, and I'm not going to tell everything. <laughs> but starts out with the sergeant of the platoon having this real ego. Mm-hmm. Now the interpreter is this humble guy, mm. huge guy, but really humble. Yeah who basically knows the people, knows the country, yeah. and is trying to tell the sergeant that he's making a really stupid choice. Yeah. <laughs> and he, and the sergeant attitude is, don't you ever yeah. undermine my authority yeah. again. Yeah. And I am not, sir, I am sergeant. <laughs> so you, he starts out with this big ego. Yeah. I'm the boss. You better toe the line. Yeah. And it shows through the movie the relationship and how it just radically changes. Mm. And it's, it's like I said, it doesn't glorify violence. Yeah. Like a lot of war movies yeah. do. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to watch, but boy, I'll tell you, this interpreter is a real hero. Yeah. And the guy, the the, the sergeant, ends up being also a mm. real hero. Awesome. Okay. So it's like a, re- a redeemed relationship. Oh, the, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. Totally. Yeah. And it really shows, and it makes good believable. Yeah. Yeah. I had to see it twice. Oh, right. It's okay. Good. Awesome. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. I was thinking about the point you were, you were talking about the realism. And I love what you said about this, by the way. But you used examples of there are psalms of high praise and psalms of lament. Mm-hmm. But yet, those in, if you take the individual works rather than the collection, you have some psalms that you might class as kind of sentimental, and mm-hmm. you have some of the psalms of lament that... I remember God and I groaned. You know, mm-hmm. it kind of cynical. It, it, do you think there is room for 
creating individual works that mm. wean toward the cynical yeah, side yeah, yeah. or wean toward yeah. the saccharine side. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I, I, I th- a lot of it is semantics. I, I think that saccharine and cynical are intrinsically negative things for me, and I wouldn't really want something I've, I've written to be either. But I, but I, I, do, I would say that like a body, a body of work is significant, and not any one painting or story or song can sum everything up. Right? It can't. And so I think it's it's appropriate that some some work should, would be darker and some work would be more hopeful and and uh, but um, I wouldn't necessarily want to say that like some of my work is saccharine, some of it's really cynical, and it all kind of evens out. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I think an example of an author that I think does a really great job, a children's author. Is Catherine Patterson? And yeah. She actually yeah, 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 yeah. Talks about some of these ideas. She has three different collections of essays on writing for children. Yes. Um, She's a great, great Gilly Hopkins and great the Bridge Gilly of Terabithia. Bridge yeah. of Terabithia, Jacob Flywell, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I love how she wrestles with really hard themes, mm-hmm. but keeps this theme of hope. But it's not this easy theme of hope that's yep. hope that's very hard one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Sarah? Um, I was thinking about, and maybe this fits into the relationship between portraying beauty and goodness, and um, I think most of your examples have quite an interpersonal mm-hmm. uh, thrust. Mm-hmm. And so I found myself thinking about the role of landscapes mm-hmm. in some books. Like I'm reading Anna Green Gables to Lily right now. Mm-hmm. And just like the way the landscape, uh, you know, approaching Green Gables mm-hmm. and the, the, the lake of shining waters. waters. <laughs> <laughs> like these, these landscapes yeah. that like evoke uh, naming, her yeah. capacity to name. And, mm-hmm. um, and then I think of the Secret Garden mm-hmm. as uh, another example where a landscape transforms a yeah. person yeah. as she engages with it and explores mm-hmm. it. Um, so I don't know. I was just I'm I'm wondering if you have thoughts in that direction too mm-hmm. about um, maybe even the realism for Christians of portraying. You know how how much the the shadow of the fall mm-hmm. is over all of those the orderedness of relationships. So right. like the the chasm between us and the rest of God's creation yeah. is um, a big one. And so mm-hmm. yeah, like these examples maybe of um, relating to land mm-hmm. um, or relating to. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, think non-human creation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah. It's a great question. Draw, draw, draw righteousness mm-hmm. out of people, or well, I mean, w- Wendell Berry is the person that comes to mind. Although I haven't read as much of his stuff as I as I should have, <laughs> but a lot of his stuff has to do with that um, 
kind of right relatedness to the land, but in the in the, in the context of an agricultural community. And, and um, but uh, yeah, are there any? I mean, I'm sure there. Are, I'm sure there are many examples. Of it, but I'm. Or I guess any, I'm wondering. Is it more with the wi- engaging with the wild? Visual yeah. Too? Yeah. Really good question. Anybody have any ideas? <laughs> yeah, Esther? In, in your book on beauty and being just, Elaine Scary talks mm. about, about beauty quite a bit, but she's not sure she talks about beauty. Something that sort of comes to mind is she talks about beauty. She talks about how, like, recognizing beauty, which is a lot more beautiful and complicated way to say it, but recognizing beauty leads. develop a habitual sort of posture towards caring of it rather than yeah. just um, yeah. you know, one off. I mean, yeah. Louise. I'm just thinking like when a person, like say you see a piece of art and it's um, like all is it mixed media when you're using all different mm-hmm. forms mm-hmm. of things and how it can be so startling yeah. and so beautiful and also a call to holiness mm-hmm. of, of this is the possibility of mm-hmm. what could be mm-hmm. or when I see a, a painting or some form of art that you feel the bravery in what somebody has done mm-hmm. and again I think that that calls out an integrity or a, mm-hmm. an invitation to rise into What's in you when mm-hmm. you let it out? Like when you spoke about Eric Garner. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, for, for me, when, um, something that maybe connects these two things, if, uh, I, I will say that oftentimes um, really good landscape painting actually helps us to see the real thing in a new in a new light also um, because because the artist saw things in a particular way and painted it in a particular way I've had this experience because I used to do oil painting when I was in high school and I was always how, how do you capture this kind of thing and then and then going to the museum and looking really closely at some impressionist paintings and really oh my goodness there's this color there's this color there that um 
I don't even know what painter it was, but that they're using that helped me actually see a real landscape in a new light. I'm like, oh, actually, yeah, like, yeah, you see, that's actually there, but I hadn't been, hadn't actually been able to to process somehow and identify. It might have even been something as simple as like, oh, when there's shadows on the snow, it's blue. This is, you know, like, why didn't I notice that before? But it took looking at a painting for me to realize this, which actually opened my eyes to to reality in a broader way because. Someone was a good painter and knew how to see for me, <laughs> and um, and that I mean that's an act of love. That's an act of like of widening my perception and, and actually being open to more of what's there. You know, all the time that that for whatever reason, you know, we just don't see. Um, and that I mean, in that in a sense, is a role of of, of artists, I, I think, and or one of the potential beautiful roles of artists is you you. It's the person who sees really well that can help other people to see, right? Um, and I've, I've, I've experienced that in landscapes. I've experienced looking at really beautiful landscape paintings and just feel like this sort of longing, to, you know, like they've captured something that I don't even know what I can't put my finger on it, but I want to, I want to walk into it, right? But I can't because you get arrested if you touch the paint. So. But, um, yeah, Lenny. I'm just thinking too in writing that setting sometimes can almost be a character. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. say, in The Lord of the Rings, yeah. think about how significant the actual settings are to yeah. setting a kind of tone yeah. Yeah. or mood or sense of safety or sense of danger or horror. Yeah. You know, it's just the, the settings are amazing. Yeah. Um, how they sort of support the whole sense of, of good versus evil yeah. and beauty versus ugliness yeah. um, really, really portraying the setting yeah. mm. while we're on the topic of Lord of the Rings and settings <laughs> the films didn't include what I would say was the entire point of the story which was like the scouring of the Shire them coming back to the Shire and they're, they are changed characters and they're able to deal with the problem at home themselves and they heal their own land yeah. which has been totally pillaged and destroyed mm-hmm. and everything and mm-hmm. <laughs> Peter <laughs> um, yeah, staying with the theme of the landscape for a moment and uh, uh, all not all cre- all creatures here and small yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently that the writers the creators of the new version mm-hmm. intentionally make the landscape a character yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. and I, I, I think you know, if you watch it, you, you, you see that, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you see it through the eyes of the, the Harriet character and, and mm-hmm. others in and of itself. Uh, and the characters just before you say, and the characters talk about it as like right. you know, like I I love the people here and I love the land. It's almost like another character that they, he would be sad to leave. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead, sir. Uh, but the, the other thing about uh, a characteristic of holiness. Uh, I think you approached it with the example of Flannery O'Connor, mm-hmm. and, and this could open up a whole other vista mm-hmm. discussion. But uh, the terrifying, consuming nature, mm. the wrathful nature of holiness, mm. uh, is something that uh, I think we also need to contend with. Mm. Uh, I mean, even more so than Job. You know, I repent in dust and ashes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are other aspects of it uh, that um, 
when we see it, I mean, I, I, I don't think in our culture we have any ready frames of reference. No, we don't. For, You're right. For that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, especially if it's going toward the good. Yeah. You know, may, maybe toward the destructive. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess some people could look at, uh, you know, the a nuclear explosion as being something holy. Uh, I mean, Not sure what I, that I mean means. in the sense of just being so beyond mm. our human capacities. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, I think... Yeah. So, I, I think that that's something that... I, I, I wish I could think of examples mm-hmm. where that is uh, expressed in, in art. Well, that, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, you see examples of that in the Bible... Um, and it's, I hinted at that, that like, that holiness can be terrifying, but (laughs) to me that is, it's really important to frame that carefully. (laughs) What, what is it that we're talking about that's terrifying? Um, it's the fact that being unholy in the presence of holiness is what's terrifying. In other words, God is, is the perfect judge. And if we stand before him, with nothing but our goodness to recommend us, we are lost. And that, and, and that is very much the, the prophet Isaiah's response in Isaiah 6. He has a vision of the Lord in the temple, and he's not like, oh, wow, what a great spiritual experience. Like he's, he's, He is immediately aware of his sin. And, and he's aware of the sin of his whole people. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. From a people of unclean lips, have mercy. you like, woe to me. He thinks he's going to be destroyed. Not because God is a bully and wants to like crush him, but it's that he he's just um, the the contrast between the holiness and the purity of God and his own lack of holiness is is terrifying. His sin is a my dad has often talked. His sin is a liability to him <laughs> when he's standing in the presence of holiness. He was fine five minutes earlier because he wasn't in the presence of holy God. And then, and then suddenly, he's made aware. It's like a light on his own, his own brokenness. And, and of course, this is, holiness isn't just about gratuitous destruction. God, God tells the angel to grab a coal from the altar and come to Isaiah and touch his mouth and purify it and atone for his sin so that he can then stand in the presence of God and not be destroyed. It's this amazing sort of foreshadowing of, of Jesus Christ coming and what Jesus Christ actually accomplishes. Um, so the, the, the sort of terrifying nature of holiness, I think is, it's only terrifying because we're standing in a position of unholiness in which holiness means judgment for us. Um, I don't think it's hard to say this is conjecture, but you know, if you imagine Adam and Eve in the garden interacting with God is his holiness terrifying to them before the fall? I, not in the same way <laughs> that it would be for Isaiah in the temple, right? Because his presence is a safe place to be. Um, and and so, yeah, it's a little bit like, it's, it's analogous in some ways to like when we think about um, attributes of God and then Things, things that God does, you know, in the Old Testament, we're like, well, some people say, like, oh, well, God is angry. That's one of his attributes. 
And I was like, no, that's actually not an attribute of God in sense that's not an essential part of who God is, his character. He is just, and he's loving, and that means that he will be angry in certain circumstances when there's injustice and when there's lack of love. And when, and so his holiness, his holiness, uh, results in, in wrath. But wrath isn't essential to who God is. It's, it's him being holy in, in, in response to, to our sin and the brokenness of the world that's rebelled against him. And, and, uh, yeah. Anyway, that's sort of a tangent. But that's, I, th- I think it's important to, that is an important aspect of, of how you see holiness in the Bible. But like you said, in our culture today, I mean, we're living in a very post-Christian world, and one of the most difficult things about the world we live in now, when it comes to trying to communicate what the Christian faith is to people, is that the idea of sin is completely implausible and a ridiculous idea, right? So if I go up to the... In Boston, at least, if I go up to somebody on the street and say, Good news! Jesus died for your sins! You know, um, nine out of ten people will be like, You're, you're insane. I don't, I don't, you're offering me the solution to some problem that isn't even a real problem. So, you're, it's an irrelevant word. Um, and, in a culture that's lost the idea of sin being a plausible thing, this idea of holiness being scary is just totally, it doesn't mean, <laughs> it's just purely negative. It's just, oh, God's just angry. Uh, and there's no, it's very hard to know, like, how to communicate that aspect of holiness in a way that, that can make contact with, with people as, as we want it to. I don't know. That's a, you know, anyway. Yeah, Kathy, yeah. Just one word for Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> I love Flannery O'Connor, by the way. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I I wasn't criticizing her. I was just, yeah, anyway, go ahead. She's she's the best. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it is true that her work doesn't portray the good per se, but Mm -hmm. part of her portraying the good is by showing the evil so so, um, blatantly. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've read Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that's right. a yeah, yeah. really good example of someone who's completely blind to her sin. Yeah, yeah. And then at the end, she sees this the vision. Yeah, yeah. Of God, mm-hmm. and she is just taken aback by that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, she can't believe it, mm-hmm. but yet she she sees it for what it is. The, and the vision that she has of holiness is all these people that she looks down on right. going to heaven before yeah. her. Right. <laughs> and yeah. So it's offensive. Yeah. Holiness of God is offensive to her at that moment. Yeah, that's, that's a great is, story. Is a <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> and Sarah, do you have something? Um, I was just thinking that um, you know, I, I think maybe particularly in light of goodness in that moral sense. Mm-hmm. Like we what what I do think sort of opens the door is the aesthetic goodness mm. of God. And um, it, you know, in, in Genesis God's pronouncement of it's good mm-hmm. over his creation has an aesthetic it's an aesthetic appraisal mm-hmm. as, as well as a moral one. Mm-hmm. And um, so Babette's Feast comes to mind mm-hmm. as, you know, uh, a film that I think really does that. 
well. Or a plate for dinner theater. It also, it also can yeah. be that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to, to, to really make goodness beautiful. Yeah. yeah. To, to sort of, uh, I don't know, question a goodness that lacks beauty. Yes. Like that right. One could say there's, there's much goodness in this little community. Yep. Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah. So, it's an, an idea of holiness, which is very actually denies a lot of the goodness that God has given. Yeah. So somehow to enjoy something too much would be uh, unspiritual, right? Mm-hmm. Very much like the the mayor of the French yeah. town in Chocolat. It's the same right. sort of like he's, you know, despite himself, ends up enjoying the chocolate. But he's, you know, but. Um, but the, yeah, Babette's Feast is a wonderful way in which the, the, the actual, just the pure enjoyment of beautiful food kind of just like mm-hmm. unlocks their humanity mm-hmm. a little bit and they're able to actually um, wake up. Yeah, it makes me think of, you know, the song, One Thing I Would Ask and I Would Seek, mm. to see, see your beauty, yeah. to find it in the place that your glory dwells within this. Yeah. Yeah, mm. like the, the, the beautiful... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's another good example of just, I, I quoted Psalm 29, like the splendor of your holiness, and that's Psalm 27, to gaze in your, mm-hmm. to gaze mm-hmm. at the beauty of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much the same, the same thing. It's an aesthetic beauty. It's not just like, ah, Look at all those rules followed. You know, it's no, it's an, it's an ex, it's an existential experience of, of beauty. Yeah, yeah Ted. Um, I keep thinking about the sentimental side, uh-huh. and you know, I think Ted Ted Lasso kind of goes that. But another one that I really like is uh, I may not know what love is. Oh, Forrest Gump. Yeah, Forrest oh, yeah, Gump. yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, but no, it's. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he, he is so faithful to everybody. Yeah. To Jenny, to his mother, to his Bubba Gump. Mm-hmm. He never gives up on any of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he, he, he's, I don't know why, that that, mm. that just draws me into the idea of, yes, there are, there are good, caring yeah. people. Hmm. Yep, he's another example. Yeah, yeah, I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is. Yeah, yeah. But that—that's—he's another example of like similar to Ted Lasso, someone who's just functioning on a a a different moral plane from everybody around him, um, and somehow sees what's important uh, because he's not distracted by all the you know everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, Paul, just wondering. Uh, if you've thought about this much in connection to music, uh, mm-hmm. we didn't really touch on music. And I'm thinking yeah. about songwriting and poetry, when I was a teenager, me and my buddies used to joke, how come the devil has all the good music? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it depends what you mean by that. <laughs> Some of the stuff that got the called rock. the devil's music, I don't think really was. Well, the rock, <laughs> the rock music with the lyrics of, you know, drug sex. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, and I, just for people who don't know, I'm, I'm, I 
as an artist, I'm mostly a song a songwriter, um, and so yeah, I, I do think about how to to write in such a way that is true true to life, true to reality, um, true to the the hard things, w- w- but without um, sort of caving to the temptation of just like writing super dark negative stuff. It's kind of easy to do, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. The hard thing is to like. Is to do both to like su- suggest there's something something else something good something something whole and and uh, hopeful uh, without being totally cheesy about it mm. and it's it's uh, most of the things that I, my mind turned to when working on this w- was just more narrative kind of art you know story storytelling just because you can develop a character much more over time than you can in a song. Because um, I was trying, to, I was mostly thinking well, about the, characters. I'm thinking but, of the lecture you did about uh, what's his name, the uh, Americana musician, Josh Ritter. Yeah, Josh yeah, Ritter? Yeah, 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 yeah. Who, in in a very few lines, paints a picture of somebody. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. That's the neat thing about uh, songs, yeah. which are poetry put to music, and yeah. that's the neat thing about poetry. In very few words, you can paint the picture. Right. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It's um, true. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, in preparing this lecture, I wasn't thinking about music very much. I don't know, for, yeah. not because not because it's not because it's um, yeah, not because it's not relevant. It's just that uh, for some reason, I was just thinking more of art forms where, that allow you to develop a character in, in, in more fully. I guess, hmm. yeah. But you're right. I mean, like a really good a really good poet or songwriter can like can communicate a lot through this sort of very compressed language and just what's suggestive and and, and uh, that's something to aspire to for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tom Waits. Tom well obviously Tom Waits. But uh I mean, we must Kathy and I always talk about Tom Waits. <laughs> Whenever we get in an argument we we just, we just steer towards Tom Waits and then we uh then we're then everything's fine again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any other thought? Yeah. I think just one thing I appreciated about what you said is there's no real perfect example. Because um, I saw a movie with Tom Hanks and a man called Otto. Oh, yeah. 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 And it's like, he's the opposite of Ted Lasso, but there's still like, you still learn a lesson if you meet on TV. Mm. It's like, his big thing is like, he thinks everyone else is an idiot. <laughs> all throughout the movie, he just says, idiot, idiot. And then the neighbor calls him up for it, and she goes, you know what your problem is? You think everyone else is an idiot, you know? So it's just like, you, you learn lessons from different characters yeah. who, are, who have different personalities and mm-hmm. stuff. But mm-hmm. in the end, there's like a redemptive element to it. And, and you, you said, like, an evil character just can't be an evil character. There has to be, like, a backstory. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ted Lasso has a backstory. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, definitely, it yeah. It makes him positive. Yeah, yeah. Otto from this other movie has a backstory that makes him kind of grumpy. So yeah, it's kind yeah. Of, it's kind of interesting. So, yeah. Yeah, there's no perfect ex- example of expressing goodness. Yeah, that's yeah, true. And there's so many different, and there's no one, okay, here's the ideal, because it's so, I mean, and this is, this is a really important thing about the kingdom of God and the church, really, is that, like, there's actually, uh, as many different ways to imitate Christ as there are people, you know, to do it. 
All my examples were much more poppy compared to Terrence Malick. So that's a different, <laughs> different well, yeah, level. Like, but it like forces you to slow down. Yeah, like you can't yeah. like just like you know like pause this movie and like go like I don't know uh, like have Starbucks or something. I don't know. But, <laughs> it, it, and like he like you're like sees and like hmm. he's like will spend like five minutes on a sunset and like. Um, mm. I, I just, yeah, he comes to mind as someone that um, really, I think he's captivated by nature yeah. and, like, also, I would say, captivated by God, too, mm-hmm. which is just, he's not, like, your average, um, uh, I, I don't really know so much of his own story, but he, yeah. he's someone who's captivated by mm-hmm. beauty and mm-hmm. uh, shows that in his art. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and a, a tree of life. Yeah. That, that film is really crazy. Mm-hmm. He just like he he like shows this video, like or he like he like goes into the cosmos and like brings dinosaurs. But then it's like <laughs> this particular story of like a family mm-hmm. in Texas. Mm-hmm. And it's really a story about grief and grace mm-hmm. and how appealing grace is, but mm-hmm. it's like also feels like a documentary. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. You still watch this film. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's and it's very noticeable as you read it aloud. So so basically, the beginning of every day that each rabbit experiences this, it's not in poetry or verse. It's just statements of what's happened. You know, Claire got sick in front of the whole art class. The bus was late again. Her shoes got filled with snow. It's just like you know, she needs a visit to the Bunny Planet, and then like. Janet comes, and then suddenly there's this day that should have been, which is just like be- quite beautifully, uh, the rhythm and the rhyme are, are really gorgeous, and they're always, at least that one anyways, very, um, there's like, 
uh, goodness and security in the rightness of a relationship between the mother and the daughter, which is just really, really beautiful. Um, and there's a lot to it. There's a whole theology of this, the bunny plant. I'm not even sure what Rosemary Wells thinks about it, but man, there's this whole idea where like she goes to, <laughs> This is totally irrelevant to this lecture, but like, no, it's not. She, uh, so Claire, the day that should have been, Claire, uh, is, is told by her mom to go out to the garden and get me the, get me the first ripe tomato and bring it in. And, uh, so she goes and picks the first ripe tomato and she's smelling it and it smells like warm earth and hot June sun and she's like, it's the only ripe one. I wish I could eat it now and never, never tell. It's like, but, you know, I, I, whatever. I, I, I save it for my mother, it brings it in, and the whole idea is like, there was this moment of obedience in order to receive a gift, because the mother, the whole reason the mother wants a tomato is to, to make soup for her, you know. So she, so she ends up, it's like this wonderful, like, um, you know, garden scene in which the fall doesn't happen. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> Any other thoughts? Esther. The way that we've sung it here is with this setting by Rayvon Williams that's really like majestic and has really cool harmonies in it. Um, But the other handbook had a different tune which I played and not recommended (laughs) by me. Anyway, it was like a tune where I was like, oh, that sounds like a Disney song. Like, it's just, like, Disney songs are great whenever they're played. Or this hymn is about the name of Jesus. Mm Yeah. No, I think that's what I mean. It's about setting. So, so what, what is the musical setting for a text? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, interestingly, if you're talking about hymns in the church, like most of the, well, a lot of the the hymns that we think of as like the original melodies for the text were, weren't necessarily the first ones that were sung. A lot of hymn writers just wrote the texts and they were set to music that someone else wrote or, or to popular tunes of the day. And so there's there's always been a lot of fluidity in that regard, but there, yeah, there's a big difference between a really good and appropriate setting for for a text and, and a bad one. To some degree, I think it's probably um, like standards of beauty change over time. There's probably some cultural things that go. I mean, to us, most most of us today, minor key hymn implies somber, heavy, sad. Um, 200 years ago, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it had the same sort of like um, connotations, you know, mm-hmm. necessarily. But but in that case, I mean, it, it, a, a minor. It, it, it's there's gravity mm-hmm. to some settings that 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 is appropriate to the, to the gravity of the words, and that augments the words and 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 gives it this lift that it would never had if you just read it read it on the page. Um, and then you're right. I think that the, to the wrong setting, it's actually subtracting from the power of the words. <laughs> sometimes the change is really good. Sometimes it's sometimes it's it's like man, they should have just left it with the old version. Um, at least to my ear, anyway. A big one is like a oh, love that will not let me go. To me, the contemporary version that a lot of people sing today is great. 
and the and the the one that most people think of as being like the original is is very schmaltzy in nineteenth century and and kind of like it's like a good thing that that setting is laid to rest in my opinion because it, it it actually it takes these wonderful words and makes it sound like some sort of parlor song uh, from nineteen oh I don't know whatever <laughs> um, yeah yeah. I don't know. If that, I, that, I'm just kind of rambling, but is there, was there anything else you wanted to say yeah, about I that? I was just thinking about how what you talked about was applied in that time. Yeah, just in that way, thinking about form. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, the warm, the goodness going with the message. Mm-hmm. The yeah, the two having to be really mutually reinforcing. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah.